podcast series. Tonight we are talking about science fiction technology that the authors or the writers got wrong. Uh, With me today is Stephanie Barr, Mike Van Horn, Eric Wickland, and I'm Eric Klein, your host. Stephanie, please introduce yourself. Um, My name is Stephanie Barr. I write fantasy and science fiction, but I also have a day job as a rocket scientist. Okay, Mike? I write science fiction. I've just completed a trilogy, Aliens Crashed in My Backyard. I'm definitely not in the hard sci-fi mode. I have a day job as a business advisor, but writing sci-fi is one hell of a lot more fun. (laughs) No argument from us. Eric? My name is Eric Wickland. Uh, My author name is E.A. Wickland, and uh, I write military science fiction, focusing on uh, combat in space. I don't write strictly hard science fiction, um, semi-hard fiction, because I include things like uh, hyperspace. That's not a proven technology, so I'll say I write semi-hard science fiction. I have one book out and several short stories. Okay, and I'm Eric Klein. I write, well, so far it's been hard science fiction, uh, complete with chapters and appendices explaining the text, so they use them in high school but I've got a couple things that are a little softer coming out. And as I said, tonight's topic is um, what science fiction gets wrong about science and technology. And out of respect for Stephanie's being a legitimate rocket scientist, I'm going to ask her to pull out her favorite or least favorite. What the heck were they talking about? Well, I'll start with, uh, I was 13 years old, so long before I became a rocket scientist, and I'm watching Empire Strikes Back. And they're shooting guns out of open portholes and landing ships in open hangars. And I remember turning to my dad going, you know, that would never work. And he goes, well, it's, it's, a, it's a movie, honey. I said, yeah, but that's not how it works. And look at them flip around like that. People would be punching through right through the hole from inertia. So one of my pet peeves is inertia. And there's really no major science fiction franchise that really isn't a, someone who violates the laws. If you're going along at uh, super speed, when your engine dies, you're not just drifting. You're still going along at super speed. And that's one of my pet peeves. Also makes it very hard to turn. It does make it hard to turn. You can still turn, but you're just going to keep going in that same velocity vector while while you're making that turn. That's right. Very true. But it's such a given. Everybody's so used to seeing it, they don't even think about it. I blame Doc Smith for that. He went and threw in inertialist concepts straight into his early science fiction and everybody's just taking it for granted without every bother to explain it. Occasionally Star Trek would mention the inertial dampers or things like that, but they just toss it out as a useful buzzword. So yeah, inertia, um, inertia, gravity, um, mass are all frequently ignored And it's something that even real people in real space can get wrong. When they were talking to the crew members who went on the surface of the moon, what bothered you the most? Were you bothered by the weight of your suit? Nope, not bothered. But the inertia was really too high. You need to do something about that. 
And my feet stopped, but my upper body just kept going. And they're pilots. They should understand this. Yeah. <laughs> when you hold something that's heavy, even on the moon, the inertia is still there. And so they get caught by that a lot because their their brains were saying it only weighs, you know, 20 pounds. But they're, it wasn't acting like a 20-pound item because it had a lot of inertia. Yeah, there are a couple of authors that have gotten it right but all too frequently it is confused. And you're right, real scientists and astronauts frequently get confused by it and do exactly the wrong thing because of it. I would actually hate to be inside of a spaceship where a 20-pound object was flying around free. <laughs> that gets into relative velocity questions. <laughs> as long as it's going at a roughly similar relative velocity to the rest of you in the ship, it's not a problem. Just don't Try to break. Yes. <laughs> or if you try to catch it, trying to catch a 20-pound football at a spaceship, that would be interesting. It'd be kind of like having a cannonball shot off inside your spaceship. No. I think a better example would be it's kind of like getting the kick of a shotgun. Unless you actually felt it and understand it, you're going to be surprised as heck. Uh, so unless you are braced properly for catching that 20-pound moving object, you are going to be knocked backwards a relative amount of velocity as it imparts its uh, velocity and, and inertia onto you. It's going to take you along for a ride. Say I'm outside in zero-G, and I'm manipulating a very large item, like the Hubble Space Telescope, that on the ground weighs 400 kilograms. That 400 kilograms of inertia could easily crush me if I handled it incorrectly because it'll pinch me between something else. And it doesn't matter that it's not heavy. It matters that it's got a large mass. So it, is, it could be a big deal. You could easily pinch your hand or a limb Has or that ever something like that if you weren't handling it correctly. Has that ever happened, Stephanie, in an EVA? Not to my knowledge. We have had people have a hard time keeping hold of it because they say spun it too fast and so their handles they had on it was pulling out of their grip and so they had to slow things down they practice in the water and the water is a good place to practice because it automatically makes you do things slow because you can't move things quickly in the water and it also gives you buoyancy so when they practice cbas they do that and that slow movement becomes programmed into their thinking when they go outside so that they move things slowly and therefore don't end up with dangerous runaway huge items imagine if you had an object that was spinning very fast you tried to grab the hand well the inertia still applies to that spin so if you tried to the handle i could imagine you're getting your arm pulled out of its socket or losing fingers yeah if you think about it the way they depict people kind of repelling by tapping the wall as they come down to slow down this is literally the way you would have to try and slow something like that down so you could get it. Otherwise, and, and they get this wrong in countless books and movies because something that is spinning so fast, grabbing onto something else is going to be like wrenching your shoulder out of the socket. Yeah. And even if yeah. it doesn't yeah. do that, then it's going to uh, impart a lot of that angular momentum to you and fling you in a direction you definitely don't want to be traveling in. Absolutely. Is yes. one reason why they tether things to themselves and tether the things to larger objects and tether themselves at all times because mm -hmm. it can be very cold out there, even though they have heaters in their hands. And uh, it 
can easily get away with you. But that's something that's almost entirely ignored in science fiction. And it's kind of a pity because it's, it's really a very interesting thing. And it's a good way to add stress to a situation. Stephanie, I am trying to recall the movie Gravity. Um, yes. Do you think that they handled... I knew someone's going to bring up Gravity. Properly? No. A lot of it very wrong. I wrote three blog posts on this. First of all, having somebody outside HST who is nauseous is a total no-no to begin with. <laughs> because if you throw up in the suit, it's literally game over. You don't do that. Second of all, she didn't know what she was doing, which is, I'm going to tell you, I, I, did, I was the EVA safety engineer for several Hubble scope. Those people spend so much time in the water learning their stuff. They know it backwards and forwards and backwards again. But the biggest thing is we had the MMU, which uh, George Clooney was riding around in. We haven't flown that for 20 years, maybe longer. And it was only flown once. So that we, that is, And believe me, it's not going to be able to take you to another space sta- station. We won't even talk about the orbital mechanics because I've got a, a whole blog post on that. And I know many people were just, their eyes were rolling in their heads from the math. <laughs> but dodging the orbital debris, trying to leave the station in a spaceship that was all wrapped up in a parachute, my mind boggles that, that you'd even try that. It was a pretty movie. But from a science standpoint, yeah, not there. Well, that really points to one of the things that uh, sci-fi very often gets wrong is space is too crowded. You know, things are too close together. There's asteroid fields where everything's about 100 yards apart from each other. And even in in gravity, when all of these uh, things came shooting back around the Earth, they were all clustered too close together. So they all were like uh, a a shotgun blast. Debris is a real issue. The problem is debris is, it's the small stuff you can't even see, one or two centimeters maximum coming in at eight kilometers per second. You're not going to see that coming. Only right. really big stuff could you see coming. You know, an expended stage from a launch rocket you could see coming. But most of the debris that's really doing you damage, you're not going to see that coming. It's, going to, it's coming five times faster than a rifle bullet. And that goes for a lot of things. Uh, in Red Planet, they had a perfectly valid meteor hit that took out their ship. I got that. So their plan was to do an EVA run for a distant satellite, which why a distant satellite would be pressurized, I can't even begin to ask. But And the, <laughs> so they're eyeballing it and going somewhere. All these things in orbit are going literally thousands of kilometers per second. Eyeballing it isn't going to cut it. In fact, eyeballing is a good way to miss it by, you know, 20 kilometers. And you don't get any points for close in space. <laughs> if you miss, you're gone. All right, so... You know, I had attached this list of my pet peeves. The one on here that I would say that bothers me the most is not a uh, a physical thing like uh, momentum, but more a uh, an implication of science and technology. And it's often used. Uh, what I find that technologies are often used to exploit the environment or societies where they are developed to the maximum, you know, so there's no limit. That's like, it's a, an exponential curve upward. There's never any moderating, um, ameliorating uh, counter uh, trends. And I look at uh, examples of this being like the surveillance society, you know, it's going to get worse and worse and worse until we all have an implant in our head and that's it. Um, or the 
Kardashev, uh, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, levels of civilization where they just get more and more the universe bound up in these huge agglomerations um, and uh, you know the whatever beings are powering them are are just keeping going forever. Or Dyson spheres around a star to limit all the uh, energy and use it for something else. Whatever they're using that energy for, I've got no idea. Uh, all the uh, another one here is the um, the idea of um, once a, a race gets out there and is expanding through. A galaxy, it just keeps going. It's just uh, an implacable force uh, ex- uh, expanding exponentially until uh, it, it like takes up everything. So anyway, that's one of my uh, pet peeves. Okay. I think that a lot of the folks that make future societies have a tendency to go, we're at point A, and then they extrapolate from that. What they don't do is they look at history. And history has shows a cycling of exploitation, awareness, fixing it, awareness, and it goes through this with all kinds of things, not just environmental stuff, but but other things where it goes through cycles. And without That's going right. back and looking at your historical precedents and yeah, what you learn, then it's really easy to think, oh, I can just go linearly on this track and, and end up at a, a certain point that isn't really backed if you look at the way history works. Everything generates its counter trend. Okay. In many ways, it's more like a pendulum. Yeah, but it's more of one of those round uh, rotating pendulums rather than just the straight back and forth. Right. Well, it could also be viewed as a spiraling pendulum. It kind of goes up, but it passes through the same spots or same lines, same parallels on subsequent spirals. I was thinking the kind that they use to draw those lovely little spirograph patterns in the sand. But yes. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the ones that um, actually, I I think this was um, Mike's list that I'm looking at. The first one on your list, focus on one advanced tech, but other ones are that are out of date are like don't exist. I've been rewatching a lot of science fiction movies and TV during this lockdown period or reading books. And with the exceptions of things like Battlestar Galactica, you end up with all of these shows where it's like technology from 50 years from today, let alone 50 years ago now, doesn't take part in those uh, at all. So you look at Star Trek and they don't have any video recordings or cameras in uh, common places. There's a whole bunch of things that are like the tech is lost or forgotten. Whereas if you look at it, we're still using hammers and tools that are the same for the last 5,000 years. Yeah. Why would some of this tech just suddenly go away? Simple things stay the same. But some of them just get completely forgotten. Like the sci-fi author doesn't want you to think about the, oh, yeah, DS9. Why don't they have security cameras anywhere in the station? It makes no sense to me. <laughs> because right. the Ninja Warriors can't That's sneak cool. up. There's basic things. Okay, Battlestar Galactica, the first series, got it really good, where the only reason the Galactica survived the attack was it was still using hardened, wired network and everything, not Wi-Fi, that could be easily hacked. Oh, okay. okay. This was a lovely concept. Yeah, but implausible. I don't know. <laughs> Having an in-ship uh, LAN with cable does not strike me as that impractical. 
the Wi-Fi being hacked factor, yeah, they got the code, so they were able to hack it. Okay, it's stretching it, but not too far. But the same right. developed Ethernet and the internet was a self-repairing network that you could run multiple networks and cables around and still keep everything communicating. That logic makes sense for a battleship. They use that on battleships today, do they not? Yes. Well, that's the Perfect. thing. Until you get to certain shows like Enterprise, you don't see a lot of the things that you would take for granted in a modern submarine or battleship on most spaceships that are out there. Nobody shows the, where is the fire extinguisher? Where are, how do they put out fires? How do they handle emergencies except when they're big, we need to go rush to the um, infirmary kind of thing. Where's the first aid kits? Where are the bathrooms? Where are the, the simple things frequently get glossed over? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would all those things. Simple handheld equipment. Exactly. Would be, would be critical. And it should be located pretty much in every room or every corridor, every couple of rooms. Exactly. Um, I, I served on Navy ships. And the, the bulkheads are littered with fixtures for all sorts of things. And, oh. and, and a lot of it included firefighting gear and communicate gear. You, you could not walk close to a bulkhead because you're going to crack your arm into a, some sort of fixture. So, yeah, that kind of gear is all over a ship, and it's necessary. You have to have it. So the person designing a movie uh, for a sci-fi movie for a big spaceship, battleship in the space should spend some time on an aircraft carrier or something to see how it's really done. Or better yet, a submarine. Submarine, yes. Better marine, yes. On a spaceship, space would be at a, a premium. A spaceship should not be like in Star Trek, where there's these gigantic hallways, where you know there's this huge amount of room. That's that's very false. On a spaceship, space is very hard to find. And I think it would be on a submarine. Submarines are tight, compressed areas, exactly. and. Uh, Walking down a hallway is a, is a real challenge because somebody else coming the other way. And you have to turn sideways to avoid them. Okay. And that leads to another one, which I know is a problem. It's something that Stephanie has discussed in the past, is movement and relative position of ships in space. Okay. They make a big to-do in Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Um, that <laughs> Khan is doing a two-dimensional thinking, not three-dimensional thinking. And it's like, any movement in space, having all of the ships line up straight is a custom, not a requirement. Okay, so everybody is saying it the same relative uh, direction up based on whatever the first ship there was. That's a custom that may exist. But until you get to things like the Orville, nobody actually takes it seriously or makes comments about it. Um, and you, you run into all these things where all of the ships, you do these huge battle scenes, and every ship is facing the same relative direction up compared to all other ships. Why? <laughs> well, just having everything on the same plane, going from one altitude to another it can be done without it being uh, devastating in orbital mechanics. It's costly, but it's not the end of the world. When you change inclinations, especially when you're going to a smaller inclination, that's huge. It's a huge deal. 
just because you could see something else in your sights doesn't mean you can go there. You have to find an orbital mechanical way to get there. And that's if you're close to a planet, but yes, that's a, a totally different from what happens in, in, and and you you have to follow the rules. You're orbiting something that's keeping you at a particular speed and direction. In order to change your orbit, I might be moving myself in a direction that seems completely counter to where I'm going in order to match orbits. It's uh, tricky, and it's complicated, and eyeballing it ain't going to cut it. I may have mentioned that before. The question is why but That reminds me of two things that are also my pet peeve list, the, all the discussion you guys had. One is seatbelts. What is this notion of having a spaceship that goes into battle and changes speed all the time and no seatbelts on any seats anywhere? That just boggles my mind. Space Walls did that one right, though. It's the only one that I've seen that's done it right. It's been a while. The other one is how easy gravity. Everybody just assumes gravity is really easy. And whatever it is that makes it so that they can have instant gravity, no matter what actual velocity or actual acceleration they're going, doesn't account for anything happening from an impact so that they all tumble out of their chairs the part of me that does math just sits there and shakes his head a lot (laughs) well the old star trek okay everybody lean left everybody lean right yeah didn't get that right even close well i think that the 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 model for a lot of these space battles is like world war ii dog fights over the ocean or something like that That, that's the way they move and of course that's in atmosphere where you've got to clear up and down and directionality, and you can turn by pushing against uh, the uh, the air, and that's that's their model for the, all of these space battles. And your speed is in the hundreds of miles per hour, not thousands of kilometers per second. Yeah, and th- things are close together. I mean, really, there's no reason why you would need to match orbits uh, of uh, two huge vessels. If they're fighting each other, I mean, you you just need to have some little lightweight weapon uh, match. Uh, you're not at the. It's not like you have 16 inch guns attached to the outside of the deck uh, of your uh, battle cruiser. No, you're going to have some little uh, light thing that breaks off and shoots uh, proton beams or something. Weapons weapons could take, take many. Forms in space. Uh, you could have many different kinds of things. You could have lasers, you could have particle beams, you could have missiles. Personally, I think that lasers would be largely ineffective in space. I think most of the dirty work in the space battle would be done with missiles. And you don't see very much, except in uh, Battlestar Galactica. They did cover that, or at least it appeared that it did. Yeah, and in one of my stories, I needed to have a space battle with lasers, and so I did a little bit of Wikipedia research on what is the actual range of a laser um, before the uh, the proton the photons spread out, and it wasn't very far, you know, a thousand miles or something. So uh, it's you you can't use those for battles between widespread uh, uh, vessels. But missiles are also subject to orbital mechanics. You can't just ignore them and shoot at something else, not in orbit. Now, if you were in just flying out in free space, then you could. Kind of the advantage of a missile is, is that it's self-guiding. It's still subject to orbital mechanics like anything else. I can't cross over into another inclination 
without huge expenditures of energy because the direction I was going originally, because I'm in an orbiting body, is going to be dictating my original speed. And I'm going several thousand kilometers per second. I send that out at a different angle, but I've still got my original orbit attached to it. It's still got all that original inertia with it. And it can change direction, but it can't change direction nearly like you'd think it would for something that would be in another inclination. It's not yeah. like in dogfighting that you'd have here in, in air, where it's you shoot it at a particular direction and it's going to keep going that direction. That's not how it works in orbital mechanics. So actually, yeah. I think missiles would be a real challenge unless you were just basically flying out in free space under minimal gravitational impulse for well there's another else. there's another problem with with missiles it, with the distances we're talking about if you're firing a missile at a vessel that is trying to evade you then if the distances are large enough then the light speed is going to be a factor in there and you're going to be looking at their former trajectory not their current trajectory and that just is another thing that the missile has to uh, compensate for at the very last moment. When you're firing any kind of uh, weapon like that, you kind of have to fire at where your target is going to be, not where it is now. Well, so, but if it is taking evasive move, m- movements, even at a fraction of a, a second of arc, that's uh, going to throw you off. Well, yeah, but it, it all depends on how much energy their spaceship has and how much thrusting ability that spaceship has and how much that missile has. Generally in weapons, your missile is much faster than your target and having no humans aboard. So you don't need to support you. You could pull as many G you want. A missile could adjust quite a bit more than a man, than a manned vessel, but Yes, you. The, the advantage of a missile is but, it can change direction. It can correct, self-correct its, its course. So if it's approaching the guy, your target, and that target has maneuvered to a different direction, that missile makes for that. I've got to tell you that I think that's uh, also misleading. When you have missiles and everybody's going a few hundred miles per hour, then it only has to be a little bit faster than that in order to be effective. When everybody's going a few thousand kilometers per second, I don't have to move very much. I could just change the attitude of my ship so that I'm, I've got my narrow side facing you than the other one, and that missile's going to go right past me. If you're going eight kilometers per second, how do you impart so much speed to that that it's going to be actually being effective on something that's going that fast? Well, part of the reason of a, of a missile is you use a proximity I mean, kill. that's a lot of speed. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I think what we're going to see in the... So we will well, that goes back ships. to why would we want to get close? <laughs> yes. The whole point of missile design is to be able to attack your target from as far away as you possibly can because distance is safety. So that's, that's going to affect missile de- uh, weapons design in the future. All right. So the best missile would be one that gets close enough and then explodes into a cloud of two millimeter pieces that spread out like a shotgun blast. Yes, and that's very much how missiles work right now. The AIM-9X currently is a proximity kill weapon. It does not actually hit the target. It explodes near it, and the shrapnel from that explosion is what destroys the target. 
And in space, that's going to be much, much more case than it is here in atmosphere. You are more susceptible to debris in space just because, you know, any hole will get you. But uh, it's a lot harder to yeah. be close enough to have any chance of having a missile be effective and still be able to protect yourself if it's going to blow out like that. Missiles are already challenged because if we're talking about orbital mechanics because you have to follow the same rules of orbital mechanics, and orbital mechanics is complicated. It's not a point-and-shoot thing. But the second part of that is, in order to be close enough where your missile might actually be effective, something that is going to blow out proximity, that's going to go out in every direction, and that means that you're also susceptible. This is one of the other problems with most space battles, where they blow something up and then go through the wreckage as if it's nothing to worry about. You don't even do that now. Deflect fighter pilot did not good. fly through the fireball. Never do that. Okay, moving away from orbital mechanics and explosives for a moment. There are a whole bunch of other more mundane technologies that they really get kind of screwed up all sorts of places. One of my biggest pet peeves is the fact of how they use the transporters in Star Trek. At one point, they start using them for medical techniques. Uh, Jordy is infected, so they're going to use his DNA to uh, remove the uh, parasite and get him back to normal, rather than turning into some sort of invisible chameleon or something. There are problems with the fact that our biome is not genetically unique or identical. <laughs> so yes. this is the case of, okay, we've just cured him of all of that. Now he's going to have all sorts of gastrointestinal problems until we can repopulate his gut. He's going to have skin problems until his body recovers and develops its biome again. A whole bunch of things. And even worse is the possibility of trying this on any woman who has ever been pregnant, whether she gave birth or not. Because they have found that women who have had pregnancies have had some of the stem cells repair damage to livers or kidneys or other parts of their body. So they've had at least one woman who, when they checked her liver, it had three different kinds of DNA in it. So if you're suddenly leaving those other two out, you've basically just deemed her back to being a sieve. There was actually a lot of problems with transporters. Oh, tons of them. The only thing um, they got right was how easily they were to screw up. Because it seems like you'd have to have your material there if you're going to reconstruct something from somewhere else genetically. You're going to have to have a, a source of material that you build it from. Yes, the atoms you. or whatever. And you're going to leave that same source of material behind from where you sent it from. And that ignores the fact that we still don't know how to take something apart and put it back together alive, let alone conscious. Yep. But it's a nice idea. It's a really neat gimmick. The other problem with it, and this comes back to momentum, is the orbital velocity I have on the starship now needs to be compensated against when I'm rematerialized on a planet, which effectively is a different orbit around the core. A lot of kinetic energy that has to be accounted for. You can expand that objection to the entire field of time travel. Like if you disappear from one time and come up with another time, where do you actually appear? You don't come up in Rome in the year 1000. You come up uh, in a spot... 1,200 light years from the sun because the sun has moved on in that uh, <laughs> years. The, the planet has moved, the sun has moved, the entire solar system has moved. So yes, the, the whole principle behind time travel like that is 
you're exactly right. You end up light years away from anywhere with no oxygen, no ship, no nothing around you. That would be a real downer. <laughs> One of my other concerns is coming back to orbital things or space travel. For some reason, they tend to almost always travel in the orbital plane. Okay, so most satellites circling Earth are roughly 15 or 20 degrees north or south of the equator. There are some that go transpolar, but much fewer. So if you're going to actually come to land on Earth, it makes much There's a reason for that. Yes, there, there's great mechanical reasons. But if you're coming in to land on Earth, coming over the top makes a lot more sense than coming in at the equator. And why is that? Keeping things spinning in space around a spinning body like the Earth works better if you're going in the direction that it's spinning. Yes, Stephanie, I'm oversimplifying. Right. Well, but you, when you say come in over the top, what I interpret that as coming in over the pole. That's correct. And there are very few satellites, as Stephanie said, for, for legitimate logistical reasons, there are very few satellites that go in a north-south kind of direction, whereas most of them go around east-west around the equator, plus or minus a couple of degrees. Geosynchronous is always on the orbital plane or on the equator, more or less. The ones that are over the equator are almost always in geosynchronous, and that's so they can stay in the same spot. The ones that are above the equator are almost always driven by where you're launching from because it's very hard to move down inclination and you and not as hard to go up in inclination. So as a general rule, like everything that the shuttle did, if it was just putting something up there, would be, I'm thinking it was uh, 34 and a half degrees. I'm thinking that was the inclination that it would be. The station is at 54 degrees because that's what Russia could do. So that's what drives what we do with inclination. Somebody coming from the outside wouldn't have any problems with doing any inclination. They wanted to insert in an orbit. And there's something to be said for going up around a polar orbit, but someone's going to be able to see them every orbit. And it's going to be a little bit somebody different every orbit. So it might be a little sneakier than just kind of pushing yourself into the, the orbits that are more populated. But on the other hand, you might notice it more because it's unusual. Most of the space rubbish and all of the things that you're trying to avoid getting hit by are predominantly in that relatively close to the orbital plane, just because that's everything we've ever put up has been in that place and they just continued there. But the same thing goes for going past asteroid belts or the rings of Saturn or anything. There is nothing that requires that you stay on the planetary plane or the planet's orbital plane to come in. That's right. There's advantages and disadvantages to getting close to a planet. You can use a slingshot to get extra energy from it. It gives you a nice place to study things. But for regular travel, yeah, no, you wouldn't want to do that. Uh, as a general rule, you want to just go past planets unless you had a reason to be there. If we have aliens coming to okay. Earth, they would come in. Uh, I, that's a question I've had. Are they likely to come in along the orbital plane or are they going to come in perpendicular and come in on a, uh, like a polar orbit or something? Uh, right. There's no reason why they would have to come in on the elliptical plane. They could be coming from anywhere. Basically, it's the where they're coming from is probably going to determine that. Uh -huh. This mm -hmm. is why the lovely interstellar body that came through our solar system uh, two years ago and had the remarkable look like of uh, Rama, 
uh, came in from a direction that they weren't expecting because it more or less came in slightly more perpendicular than we normally expect to look for comets and asteroids. Oumuamua. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Sorry, I still think of it as Rama. But most of our searching for bodies that can hit the Earth mean that we're looking in the planetary plane. So something coming from above or below doesn't get seen as quickly. Which may be part of their strategy. If there is such. I wanted to throw in a biological question here. I I was thinking about uh, my favorite movie series. I think it's probably some of the worst science fiction ever, but it's still my favorite. But that would be the Godzilla series. (laughs) And the reason I want to bring it up is... I'm trying to imagine how an animal as large as Godzilla would not destroy every biological ecosystem that it came through. I mean, how could you sustain such a creature as big as that? Didn't we at one point, didn't we sustain things like dinosaurs? No, never that big. Never. Okay. (laughs) The biggest whale. I'm not an aficionado on on Godzilla, so I don't know how big he is. Gigantic. <laughs> Look yeah, at but- things relatively for a second. Okay. How well, with full malice of forethought, are you at destroying the ecosystem of the ants and insects that live in your yard? Some of them you step sure on. Enough. Some of them you completely ignore because they're not relevant or interesting to you and you just kind of walk past and ne- they never even notice them. This is pretty much the theory behind Godzilla comes, does what it has to do, and then goes back to where it wants to sleep. It's not out to destroy the ecosystem. It's just walking through what happens to destroy the ecosystem. My question is, what, how does it survive, though? What is it eating? Well, most stories That's say that-, that it sleeps all the time, and it's, and it's mostly eating aquatic things. But um, that's just bad science fiction uh, up there with the 1950s and 60s B-movies, uh, them where you have giant ants or um, all sorts of other radioactively grown uh, giant-sized critters. Right. Because a giant ant would collapse under its own weight. Yes. But <laughs> all too often, radiation of some sort is used as a magic method of getting the story along. Whether this is the Incredible Hulk or giant ants. Um, and then you get other things like um, War of the Worlds, where it's simple bacteria in the rain that kills them. Um, yeah, that was an interesting thought. How did? Why did they even interact with a with, with our biology in the first place? Why allow that to happen? It's a good question. How did the, how did the rain get into their ships? Were they're not airproof, waterproof um, ships? Right. I mean, you would think that they would try to keep our our ecosystem out of there because they would probably not be compatible. Our atmosphere would An be corrosive and poisonous to them. Yes. <laughs> Oxygen That's the other thing. How is it that so? How how can uh, anyone go to another uh, planet and even think about eating an animal that that lives there? I mean, it's the proteins that that are, that are there are completely indigestible. That goes into a whole different question of evolution and where does the basic amino acids that our life is made from originate. Some theory is is that they're created in space, and that's not a problem. Uh, We'd have similar amino acids elsewhere, and others of, you've got to be kidding. Well, uh, but then there's the the, uh, thing of 
convergent evolution, if you look at uh, things like chlorophyll, for example, uh, does chlorophyll exist on other worlds that have uh, plant life? Uh, I mean, that's a has evolved to be a pretty efficient converter of starlight to plant food. So that if it doesn't exist, that means there has to be something else that does just as good a job. Now, you can extend that kind of thinking to other proteins uh, that entities would be uh, built of. I, I, don't, I just don't know how far down that goes. Unfortunately, neither do we. It's all hypothetical at this point. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, even in our DTs, there are plants that survive without any sunlight at all. Correct. And then there's so um, there's other ways, but well, do they have? But they don't have chlorophyll. No, they do not. Uh, if I recall correctly, they have bacteria living inside them that are uh, processing uh, the chemicals that are in down there in the deep sea, and they that's how they do it. That's how they get their energy. Okay, but if you look at the whole idea about um, identical uh, evolution, uh, it has been pointed out that the octopus has no um, genetic relations directly to mammals, but yet the eye has developed along identical lines. Yes. Okay. The eye has developed, evolved a number of different times in different beasts. Also, the wing. So on that note, I'm going to have to uh, call a wrap to this. Thank you all for joining. Uh, I hope you've been amused by this. So Stephanie, why don't you tell people where they can find you? You can find me at Stephanie Ebar, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-B-A-R-R.us and on Facebook. And Amazon. Actually, all my books are wide, so you can find me at Barnes & Noble and Kobo and anywhere else. Mike? GalaxyTallTales.com. Great. And Eric? Uh, you can find me uh, under E.A. Wickland at Amazon under Goodreads and also and under Facebook. And you can also find me on my blog under Momus News. And you can find me at Eric L. Klein, E-R-I-C-L-K-L-E-I-N.com. Uh, Amazon, Goodreads, um, etc. Thank you for joining us and catch us next time on the next Sci-Fi Roundtable podcast where we will be discussing fantasy influences.